What we really want to be uh, focused on this morning is a conversation that's not comfortable. People keep going, so are you excited about this series? No, I'm not. Um, it, it's one of these series that honestly many of you have reacted. You're, it's, it's one of those conversations that some of us have gone, hey, why do we need to have this? And this morning, what I want to do is lay out the reason why I believe this is an issue and why we do need to have this conversation. And so we're going to be talking about, um, about a PG-13 level conversation. So if you don't want your children in a conversation pertaining to the subject of pornography, and all of the kind of parts that float around that, I would advise you to get them out of here. Go on, go. Their children's ministry has available classes and they're available to have that conversation. If you're, if you're not comfortable with that point, um, they're, not having, they're not having this conversation. They're doing their own curriculum they normally do. And so uh, we in here, we are having a, a conversation about what I believe is probably the, one of the greatest scourges that is hitting the 21st century. And so it began though for us, and so if you need to do that. And so for us as a church, where I want to begin is really a conversation that started about a, about a month and a half ago when a particular individual named Hugh found himself in his coffin. A man that was well known here in Hollywood and well known around the world, Hugh Hefner, had founded the, had founded the Playboy Empire in 1952. And in, in, in that one act, he was called one of the two pillars of the sexual revolution. In fact, without Hugh, without Hugh Hefner's um, Playboy, um, really another person would have had to fill that role because it was pornography and contraceptives that launched so much of what we see as a sexual revolution in the 60s and has pervaded all the way into our time period. And so as P, uh, when he died, you heard people lauding him as, as a, a liberator of women, as somebody who had created this whole revolution and set people free and all of this stuff. And, and what was interesting about all of this conversation is that it was, it was just sad that I just, I, I was just sitting here thinking he, he called women bunnies. He, he named them animals. He didn't, he didn't call them humans. He, he, per, he was actually a purveyor of something that became so ubiquitous. And the reason he was popular at this wasn't because he, he did anything that, was, that wasn't new. Pornography had been around. But it was where it was found. Originally, it was found in that seedy shop in the middle of the town or down in that, that one movie theater nobody really went to. And what he managed to do was to turn it into something that people thought was as American as apple pie. You ordered, this, you ordered this magazine, it came through the mail, nobody had to see it, and it was legitimized by advertisers and, and legitimate articles. And so men would say, ah, I don't look at the pictures, honey, I just read the articles. Which they proved was false last year when, when Playboy ceased to publish nude photos and, went to some, and just went to sexual photos, and their readership continued to plummet. So the problem that they realized was the Pandora's box that they opened up in 1952 had grown so large that they could, that on the internet, anything and everything could be found and they had no market share left. Hugh Hefner, who had celebrate, been celebrated as opening this door, um, was lauded and loved. And yet at the same time, another H name suddenly has become infamous, namely a man named Harvey. And when Harvey Weinstein was asked what in the world was going on with his life and why this happened, he blamed the sexual revolution. And so within one month, our culture lauded the, the creator and one of the main pillars of the sexual revolution and now curses its son. What is going on in our culture is a, is a time period in which we are so confused and unclear about how deep and how pervasive this problem has become. 
And in that, we, we have become a church with no voice, and we, we get confused about what is happening, and what does the scripture say about this? Is this okay in a marriage? Is this okay in our family? Is this okay in general? And what we're going to do is we're going to examine the scripture. We're going to look at the text and say, what does God think about pornography? Because you're going to be surprised how much the Bible has to say, really, about this basic conversation. And what we're going to see is that Hugh Hefner wasn't the beginner. It was there far before. In fact, what's interesting is some archaeologists were digging around in the dirt by the Danube River, and they found this Neolithic site, and as they excavated the Neolithic site, they came upon this small figurine statue. When they dated this figurine statue, it dated to somewhere around 22 to 26,000 BC. It's considered one of the oldest, if not the oldest, archaeological find. And it is a, a clearly pornographic little idol. They call it the Venus of Willendorf. 26,000 BC, whether you agree with the timing, the datings or not, it just goes to show this has been around a very long time. And humans have been humans a very long time. In fact, it goes all the way back to the beginning. And so that's where we're going to go. I'm going to show you what God intended and why this comes about and then how we have begun to twist this. So grab your Bible, open it up to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start there begin to examine this chapter and, uh, and what God has to say about this subject. And then we're going to move on through uh, 3 through 7, or 3, 7. And we're going we're gonna to look at this. But it begins, and Moses is writing a history for, for Israel. And the, this Genesis 1 and 2, it gets, it's gets lampooned in our culture and stuff like that. But let's just be honest. What Moses is writing about is he's, he's not telling us a scientific treatise. He's telling us the moral intentions of God. And these true events that I believe are history were there and God had them written in this manner to teach us what his intentions were for so many things about humanity. And so what we're going to look at here is we're going to start off in chapter 2, verse 18. He's created man, a, a man named Adam, that, that's what man means, Adam, and he's placed him in a garden. And then immediately, instead of just, you know, getting moving into history, it seems that God pauses for a second and says, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. You know, I'm going to make a helper fit for him, suitable for him. I'm going to make a helper, and this word helper fit for really is not a degenerating uh, or an insult. It actually means that I'm going to make somebody who is a connection. I'm going to make somebody who actually completes fills in the gaps, is actually able to correspond to the man. And so God's looking at the man. He's just standing there like this, looking around the garden like, cool. Because what does a man do if he's just alone? He stands and looks at things like, that's cool. And tinkers with stuff. And God goes, this is not good. And all the women said, amen, right? And it's just like, so looking at Adam, he goes, we got to do something about this. But here's what's weird. He doesn't just jump right in and so, and so he made a woman out of the clay. No, there's this entire long pause and it's interesting when you look at it, it starts off now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that's, that was its name. I find this a fascinating thing. So here he is just kind of tootling along. God goes, this isn't good. I know what we'll do. We'll make all the animals and he can name them. So he, he creates this animal and, and it's got these two horns coming out the side and it's kind of sizable and it walks along. He's like, oh, that's interesting. And he sees it as he passes and he goes, oh, bull. And the next one, it's, it's, it looks just like the bull, but it's got no horns and then walks by and he goes, cow. <laughs> sees this other one, giant rack of antlers and it comes across and he's like, oh, okay, wow, this thing, oh, 
buck. And it comes alongside the next one, doe. And then he's like, oh, what's this? It's a dog. And the dog rolls over and he goes, oh, boy dog. And then the next dog comes up, rolls over, and he's like, girl dog. And they move on. Get the picture? And eventually, one, at some point, he goes, hey, what's going on here? Everybody's got their pair. What's happening in this scene, it appears to me, is that God is doing something. He is showing Adam what he is missing. In fact, the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. And for Adam, there was not a helper found fit for him. I mean, can you imagine how exhausting that is? You know, dog, cat. He's just seeing it. He's seeing it. Finally, he's so tired. His bugs fly in front of him. So he's like, I don't know, fly. You know, it's like he just has to make up a name. He's so exhausted. And finally, God goes, you know what? You know what's wrong here now. There's a longing legitimate longing that's occurred. He's going, where is my other? Where is my pair? Nothing is suitable. Nothing's fitting me. Because Adam, for Adam, there was not a helper fit for him. So verse 21 hits. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with the flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into the woman and brought her to the man. I find this fascinating because there's all this conversation about the rib and the woman being next to the man. And so it's not from his feet, so he's over and not from his head, so he's under her. They're equal in their status. This is all old, ancient, like um, theology that they would talk about. And yet when you read the actual Hebrew text, it says peace. What I find fascinating is if you look at genetics and the chromosomes, men have an XY and women have an XX. And you only use one of your Xs. There's a sense that he took a piece from us in order to create the woman. Everything that was necessary was there. You just kind of remove the why, and you guys are perfectly sane and normal compared to us. And, but that comes later. The, um, but what we see is this sudden reality that God has done something. He's formed the woman. And then he does this beautiful thing. And from that, he formed the woman, he, and he brought her to the man. It seems he wakes up, and then the man says this. It's as if he sees her coming, and here she is. God's drawing her down towards him. I imagine this picture many of us men have seen before if you've, if you've been married. Here is your bride coming with her father down the aisle towards you. It's the same picture. This is the first wedding. This is the first initiation. All of this is coming together. And when he sees her, all of that longing that had built, been built up by, you know, male, female, male, female. Everything's building and building and building and building. And suddenly he's asleep. He wakes up and he sees her coming. And this is what he says. He says, ah, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. He names her after himself. He says, this this is her. Oh, my goodness. In other words, we say, I'm a man. And whoa, man. Because think about what the indication is here. He's seeing her and he's erupting in joy for seeing her. He hasn't touched her. It doesn't say he's, he's it says he's, she's coming towards him. And there is something about the visual presence of a woman for a man that is palatable and powerful and intended for when she is approaching him. And I know in my conversations with many women that for ladies, it is far less about what you see and it's far more about how you feel you're seen. Value is found in the very sense of your presence, not in the presence of, uh, uh, for men, it's found in what we're looking at. And there's this very interaction that God intended right here at the beginning as the visual and the viewed come together in this unison because all this is climaxing literally into the sexual relationship of the family. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, it says, hold fast or cling to the wife, his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
And the man and wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's no shame in the sexual union of the marriage. There's no shame in the bringing together of this union to one flesh. It was all culminated, initiated by God going, not good, to, I know what to do, create a longing, explode in that longing, and bring about a unity. You see, God created this and intended the sex drive, but lust has corrupted it. And what the scriptures indicate is that God has intended this beautiful picture of a man and a woman coming together in a marriage and the bond of that deep relationship and intimacy to produce a family which can and, and in, the case of the, in, this, in their case would produce fruit, which is children. If you're married and you, and you don't have a child, you are still a family. The birthing and the evidence of that family in the, in the health, when we're healthy and everything's worked right and everything comes together and I get that there's lots of pain there is in the fruit of a child. But you are a family. And so it's very important that what God is showing here is there's the bounds of sexual love is bound within the picture of the marriage covenant and the family relationship. And that's what is birthed. And so here suddenly we have a problem because things begin to immediately get corrupted. Adam and Eve's marriage is going to be disturbed by the enemy. And so we flip over to chapter three, beginning in verse one. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we can eat of any fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. And here is this picture, like what in the world is going on? Talking, talking serpents. Yes, what's going on is this animal was imbibed by the demonic entity that we today call Satan. Satan is against God. And as he's speaking, he is attempting to woo humanity away from unity with God to disunity with God and enter into sin. And he does so through temptation. He starts by simply suggesting a thought. Huh, you're not going to surely die. He says in verse four, for God knows that whatever you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Have we not heard this before where God is saying the beauty and the wonder of sexual energy and joy and love is intended for this thing called marriage, this thing called family that is being produced from this bond of one flesh. This is where it is. This is glorious and good. Really? Did God really say that? I mean, come on. You all know he's trying to keep something from you. All this joy and all this fun. Come on, you know it doesn't really belong in there, does it? It's really for just to enjoy together. Come, you don't have to listen to that old, antiquated, law-based idea. Very odd that this parallels so well what we've told ourselves over the last 60 years. It's so interesting that this same lie of, really, God said that? You don't really, you really, I think God's probably trying to keep something from you. He's trying to liberate you. I want to liberate you. Give you something you didn't realize you didn't have. And so Eve, taking in this thinking, goes into verse six. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, that means it had good utility, that it was a delight to the eyes, it was kind of pretty, and the tree was desired to make one wise. She took its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Note that, was with her. He's not off somewhere else. He's there, not saying anything, and he ate. 
And suddenly the eruption of sin comes upon the land. In fact, the next verses say, Then the eyes of both were opened, they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I believe it happened a little bit like this. She went, Well, that's pretty good here, trying. He's like, Okay. And he went, Hey. And she went, Uh uh. Let's go get some leaves. And they suddenly started sewing everything together because both of them suddenly didn't feel comfortable being naked around each other anymore. Shame had it in. Shame had come. And now guilt was there. Eventually they would not just hide from each other, they would hide from God. And what we see is we would hide from even ourselves. And the brokenness of humanity to the earth, to God, and to one another had begun because of sin and because of these things. And so one of those sins that erupts in this point is lust. Notice what happens. Eve says it was a desire to, for the, a delight to the eyes. It was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. It's picked up by one of the disciples of Jesus, namely John. And, in the, and he would write a letter to the churches, and he would say this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. God did not intend for all of this desire, all of this range of emotions and, and, and stuff to turn into beyond the marriage. It wasn't supposed to birth away from the bonds and the covenant of a marriage and, and then end up being something we desired in the flesh and desires the eyes. It says, that's not from God, that's what the world creates. And right here, I need to get a little technical, so give me a minute, because I'm going to back up and be a little bit of a teacher for a second, because we've got to have some definitions. When it comes to lust, we we can say that lust is the desire for anything, an inordinate desire for anything. But in this case, I'm going to take a a secular philosopher's definition for a second, because I believe it matches fairly well what the scripture says. And he defines lust as being sexual pleasure for its own sake. It is using the sexual drive God intended and using it for you and your own desires. So it's twisted away from the relationship into the getting. And so the second aspect then is, I want to I define then pornography from this perspective. Lust is the, in, is the incendiary, it's the sin that's causing the problem, but pornography is any form of art that intends to produce lust. Any form of art that intends to waken the sexual drive outside of the marriage. And that is what pornography does. And it, you, with that definition, it is much broader than you can imagine. It fits in romance novels and erotica to movies to little statues like Aphrodite's and things like that that were used throughout the centuries to bring that very effect at temples. And all the way into our current age with the internet pictures and all these other pieces chat rooms, you name it, all of this, if it's intended to drive somebody to lust, if it's intended to drive somebody to use this sexual drive God intended in this bonding relationship to go outside of it, that artwork is pornography. Now, you can quibble with me on that, but the, that expression right there is the creation of so much of what we're looking at. In fact, Jesus, I think, has a major, as the biggest problem, draws the hardest line when it comes to lust. He knows it's so destructive. And on the Sermon on the Mount, he actually declared, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And here's what I find fascinating. Jesus takes a lustful intention of looking at a woman or looking at a man, ladies, if you're looking at, at a man, and I know that this, this guy's just navigating his way over here. We're going to set this back. And what happens is he's saying this lustful intent is equaled to the breaking of the bonds of a marriage. 
Why? Because the, the intention of the desire and the intention of the sexual longing is intended in the relationship here to produce the unity of one flesh in the family. And this is God's intention. And what happens is when we lustfully look, we take all of that drive and desire and we flood it outside, breaking the bond of the marriage and thus creating adultery in our hearts. And Jesus is literally bringing this out. And I believe he was genius in this. When you start to think about what is pornography, pornography is the intention to make us lust. It's the intention to take what God has placed in the, the beautiful bounds of marriage and moving it outside. We'll get to these in a minute. But what I want you guys to see and to understand is that when you look at a page, when you look at a screen, when I look at something that's causing me to lust, and we all are in this category, we're taking this energy and it's going in a, in a direction God never intended. First of all, pornography is a problem because it breaks the bonds of marriage. There's no relationship you have with a page. There's no relationship you have with a story. Even a chat room is a false relationship. It's false intimacy. And very often what's going on is that false relationship is destroying the other. Sex is about a relationship. And and all of us, male and female, know it's about an intimate relationship that is not just about an act. Second, we see that that very energy is providing a different bond, a different direction. It's destroying in in a zone that we don't want to because it's making human beings objects. That's why I've met so many men in my life who said, well, you know, just because I ordered from the menu doesn't mean I can't look at it still. When did women become an object on a menu? Oh, they're eye candy. Oh, so a woman's worth simply a quarter sucker? I'm sorry, that's objectification. And our language gives it away. That what we do when we lust is we take a human being who's made in the value and the image of God and we turn them into what we want them to be in our head and we make them into our playthings. Devaluing them completely. Hey, here's a nice hunk of meat. Oh, really? To assuage our guilt and our feelings, we must equate people away from humans and people with stories and parents and brothers and sisters and we turn them into objects that we can own, possess, or use. This is the primary thing I believe that Jesus is saying. This is why it's destructive. In fact, I think what Paul gets to is very interesting. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Now, I don't usually use a lot of Greek, and so I'll use it here because it's very interesting. That word, sexual immorality, is the word porneia. Sound like anything? Flee from porneia. Every other sin a person commits outside the body. But sexual immorality, porneia, that's a sin against his own body. That's weird to me because I would think that like suicide and, you know, cutting yourself, that's a sin against your own body, right? And he's saying, you know, the sin that's against your own body is the sexual sin. And I believe what he's getting at here is this is the one sin that somehow turns away from harming just other people to harming yourself. It twists you up. And I believe it creates selfish people. How could it not? When we look at the world and we turn everybody into our personal playthings in our minds. That's extremely selfish. To take a bond, a power that God intended to bond us to another person and to use it as our own energy for ourselves creates selfish people. It's very interesting that with the rise of the sexual revolution has risen the me generation and a hyper focus on the self. And selfishness has been on the rise along with it. Because 
God told us and he warned us, guys, this isn't something to play with. This twists itself. And we're discovering it's because the brain itself is twisted by lust and pornography. There's been massive amounts of studies that have just been coming out on what is going on in the cocktail of the brain itself. The hormones in the brain that happen during sex are powerful to the level of methamphetamines. They're extremely addictive and powerful. And God intended them to be there because he intended you to bond in your marriage in a powerful manner. Intended you to bond in your family, to create the family bond that is unbreakable. In fact, I'm going to lay these out for you. Not all of them, but these are the main ones. It starts with testosterone. Who hasn't heard of testosterone? Everybody's heard of testosterone. Testosterone is that thing that men think gives them energy. Yes, it gives them muscle tone. It brings a lot of changes in their bodies. But testosterone in a healthy male is actually released slowly. Because it's intended by within about 24 hours to reset the male mind to where it's able to be attracted to the woman. Now, it's slower release in women, but it's released and it builds into sexual desire. Testosterone is that very thing that makes you go, hey, babe. You know, some days you're just like, hey, babe. Other days you're like, hey, babe. That's testosterone. That's what clicks into the brain and starts working. Now, what they have shown is that with the use of lust and pornography, testosterone is overproduced. In fact, it's so rapidly produced in the brain, the brain is creating more and more of it so that men are what they call hypersensitized. They walk around and a woman flips her hair and they think, oh, hey, I know what that means. It doesn't mean that at all. It means hair was in her face. <laughs> she walks out in certain clothing and you're like, hey, no, that clothing means she's cold. And men will find, and women who are in these states will find sexual cues where nothing exists. They will turn objects into sexual cues. They will turn very events and situations into sexual cues where they don't exist because testosterone levels have existed in higher and higher states. What God intended you to be attracted to your spouse become, and notice your spouse's cues has become, we notice all kinds of cues that never existed. Number two is this norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is the memory and the memory hormone, when there's the intense original memory that was, I believe, intended on the honeymoon night, it seals with you. Some of you have never been able to release that first relationship. It's why you remember that first kiss, that first handhold, or unfortunately for you, if it was outside of marriage, you've not been able to release that first memory of your first sexual experience. Norepinephrine seals it into the brain. And what unfortunately happens, it also seals in the visual images of pornography so that you struggle. You go, I don't know why these things are popping into my head. I thought I forgot that. No, your norepinephrine will never let that go. And what occurs is that the more we've imbibed in pornography, the more often we bring it into our lives. And it bugs the, it bugs the bedroom and it bugs the way our, we view our spouses and it becomes the very background definition for how we view and understand sex. And that's why dissatisfaction drops in a marriage relationship as pornography increases. And norepinephrine continues to weld it into the brain as the right and response and everything else is just less and less and less. God intended it to be that amazing remembrance of all those times with your spouse and we use it for all these other things. Oxytocin and vasopressin are actually the, um, the bonding agents. Oxytocin is rapidly released in a woman when she has a baby. And so it bonds the mother immediately to that child. And there's this intensity that occurs from oxytocin. And it's most released in men when they climax. And God intended this oxytocin, the vasopressin, to explode in our minds, to bond us to our spouses. But it also comes out massively when we view porn and when we're engaged in these other forms. 
And what it's doing is it's bonding people to pictures and images and paper and videos and stories. The vasopressin is also dangerous because the vasopressin bonds you not to the person, it bonds you to their behaviors. And so when your wife or your husband does something and you go, oh, I know what that means. That's, that's the vasopressin reminding you, locking that together. But if it's filled with all kinds of other images, the vasopressin is bonding you to behaviors that are not from your spouse, but from somewhere else. And that vasopressin creates in us an inability to see what God intended in the midst of these things. Now, opiates and serotonin, that's the euphorics. That's what brings us back together over and over and over again in a marriage. It's also what creates the addict. Why they continue to go back and back and back to these different things. Because they've now bonded not to a person, they've bonded to a page, they've bonded to stuff. And so this is not something that, that, that is easy to break because what happens is the brain itself, which is plastic, routes patterns of behavior into our minds with these powerful hormones. And as these routes begin to become ingrained, we begin to form habits that lead to addictions and patterns. And so when you meet somebody who has been struggling with this, is, and it's not so much that, hey, you're just a pervert, you're just a sinner. No, there is some massive intentional things God has done to bond a man and a woman together that is fighting against us. And so what we need to see is this isn't a call to just yell and scream at people. It's a call to remind ourselves that, hey, Jesus was right. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to it. It gets bound into our memories, bound into our, very, into our very consciousness and is radically difficult to divorce. This isn't stuff to play with. This is stuff to deal with. Well, all them perverts out there need to figure that out then. Thanks for preaching, Greg. I'll go tell them. Well, hold on a second because this may be bigger than you think. Recent studies... Um, my studies are two years old. They're newer ones, but they're harder to get a hold of. Actually indicate that when it comes to men, 90%, well, I always do this wrong. Is that right? Nope, there we go. 90% have been exposed before the age of 18. 60% of women were exposed before the age of 18. I don't know how that works. There we go. There. Guys, those are two-year-old statistics. Some are viewing it at the point of where it's nearing 100% saturation of exposure before the age of 18. It is rampant on the internet and massively free. And the internet is right there in your pocket. In fact, a recent study of 20, some odd, uh, about $250,000 study of the church indicated that, no, not 46. 64% of men in churches, evangelical churches, view porn once a month. When asked about how much time they spend on it, the study eventually goes on to say it's more likely the men in the church have spent more time looking at porn than looking at their Bibles. Women, they're doing a little better. They're at 15% of women in the church are viewing pornography, and this ranges, and it changes ranges depending on the age, but it's this older study, they're finding that uh, in the culture, it's ranging now up into the 30% and higher. This is part of, I've got 51% here, those are 15. <laughs> I'm trying to give the guys a little angle edge, but no, no sorry. 
But do you see why? Men are wired with this visuality. Men are given this intensity and the struggle is still existing and growing in both cases. This is, you, this is becoming ubiquitous across our culture. And what we're seeing here is constant problems. In fact, let me just show you this one. This is about the internet. I probably don't have all the right balloons there, but let's put it this way. The black balloon represents the one time out of eight. One out of every eight searches on the internet is for pornography today. It's a $100 billion industry in 2014 and has grown. If I take three of these balloons away, one out of five searches are actually searches on a mobile phone for, for pornography. The advent of the, of the mobile device has increased the likelihood of being exposed and dropped the age down to the age of 11 on average. Imagine a child going through puberty with this kind of hormonal power with that kind of addiction problem. Some have wondered why I would preach on this. This is why. Friends, this is not a small problem in a dime store closet uh, place somewhere. No, this is in our homes and affected almost everybody I know. It's an epidemic levels. And lust hasn't grown worse. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we, we are any different than any other human beings. What's different is it's legitimized in our culture to the point where it's considered even cool to give this stuff to your children to train them in sexuality. It's considered a rite of passage to become a man. It is put into such a situation that we've ignored what all the science is now beginning to tell us. That porn harms marriage, women, and society. I'll just start with marriage. What's interesting about marriage is that God told us a long time ago, hey, listen, Hebrews chapter 13, verse four, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. In other words, he's saying, let's not be on that side of the fence. God has set you free in Christ. Let's not act like those that are going to wind up being judged for these kind of things. This isn't to be introduced as healthy in the marriage. It doesn't, actually. They're finding studies. It creates impotence, and it creates massive struggles in the marriage bed. Some marriages are addicted to using it so they can enjoy one another. It's gotten bad. It is not a helpful thing. It's a destructive thing because it takes all the energy in the wrong direction. In fact, what we've also begun to see is that two-thirds of divorce cases point to pornography as a major cause. Two-thirds. This isn't creating marriages. When you can't bond rightly together, the incidence of divorce is much higher. God created you guys to bond together in that marriage. And when we're using that bonding everywhere else, they're showing it lessens it. In fact, that stickiness factor gets less and less and less with all the different bonds. It's not good for marriages. It's been destroying marriage. In fact, it creates inferiority complexes and destroys the sanctity of marriage, especially for women. The value of women has, the value of women has, been, has been decreased. As you can see, Hugh Hefner calling them bunnies, calling them animals, viewing the, you women as, as, as objects and not humans with stories and parents and brothers and sisters. And what's gone on is actually you begin to discover that you don't, women don't view themselves as the image of God anymore. You view yourselves as, as the, the value of being accepted or wanted. Studies done with 12-year-old girls over the last couple of years has shown that they don't feel like they can get a boyfriend if they don't act like a porn star. 
That's why we'll talk about children next week. It's so huge, but this has become so rampant. It's changing the view and the image of women. I remember back when girls dressed fairly modestly, like when I started as a youth pastor in the early 2000s. It's like, yeah, it's not a big problem. Yeah, they, weren't, they didn't balk a whole lot at wearing, not wearing a two-piece when we went to the beach and things like that. And then out came Britney Spears with the advent of the internet. I never saw such a rapid change in the dress of young ladies. We did modesty series. We talked about it constantly. And one girl put it this way. She says, I get that I'm supposed to be modest. My boyfriend wants me to be modest, but let's be honest. He looks at the girl who's dressed scantily and I want him to look at me. And so our entire industry of fashion has continually pushed the edge and pushed the edge to become less and less modest. In fact, modesty is a bit of a joke in our culture. And in churches, I hear people talk about the missionary who goes to the other culture where they have women walking around with shirts. Oh, see, that's okay. And it's like, really? We're going to make excuses? And it's because I know, I've talked to so many women, your value is feeling deflated and destroyed because you got to put up and show up and be like things that you're not made in the image of. We don't need the plastic surgeries. We don't need these things to make us young and no, God's value is put in you because he made you valuable. It is not given to you by a man. It is not taken from you by a man. It is given to you by God and is found in you. And we ought to respect you as our sisters, as the beautiful, valued image of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the scariest thing is the insidious and the rise of illegal and harmful sexual behavior. There was a debate about this for so long until Australia finally said, okay, fine, we'll legalize pornography. When they legalized pornography, the people who were against said, you're going to see the rise of rape. We've seen it in every other country. They said, no, no, no. Within a decade, the rise of rape had gone up hundredfolds. Because when you turn women into objects and men have a desire that's not supposed to be bound in any moral context, some men just don't have any self-control. Guys, this isn't something to game with. This isn't something to bring into our homes. This isn't something to play with. It is the very thing that drives the sex slave trade and the sexual exploitation that many of our our teams and police and other things, people in our church work on these task forces to stop this stuff. It is at a root core of so many aspects of what we're going through. And so I'm just going to say, let's just look at what the scriptures indicate one final time. And this isn't to, I'm not here to again make guilt. I'm here to call and clarify and make us ponder the reality. There should just be no excuses in the church. We should be of a people that aren't trying to figure out how close to the line can we get before it's bad. No, we're set free. Let's do the things God has called us to. And let's have no excuses in the church. In fact, Ephesians says it this way. Paul's writing says, but let pornea and all impurity and covetousness not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. First of all, let me know you're saints. You're not sinners bound to sin. You're saints set free. And yes, we may struggle, but you're a saint and you have the power of God behind you and the Holy Spirit with you to empower you to walk away from a world and not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed into the image of the very God who has made you. 
And that's what we're to walk in. That's what we're to celebrate. God made this beautifully and ready to bond you together. Yes, we may have pasts and struggles in our lives, but God sets us free. God removes these bonds. So let's not allow it to become a problem further. And so this is me begging, please don't use it in marriage. If you're single, don't use it as a release for your sexual drive. It doesn't help. It creates deeper problems and greater issues. If you're single and you're struggling with pornography and you think it's going to go away when you get married, it's not. Don't even give in. Don't even start. Go for help. Get, get aid. Let's live in these manners that sets us free and not binds us up. Don't use it to teach your kids. I mean, let me ask you a question. When I teach them about drugs, don't give them meth. It's like, hey, a little meth won't hurt you. Start you off good. You know, you get used to it and you'll be, no, we don't. That's, this is the same kind of addictive level stuff. Because we don't need to introduce this to our children. We need to, we need to make sure that we're keeping them safe. And so don't consume it in your media. Be aware, guys. Don't go running with your kids to Deadpool. Come on, check it out before you go. Don't have Game of Thrones night at your house with your kids. There's been enough naked women in that show. They were protesting how often they had to be naked in that show. And to be honest, if you've watched all of it, you've seen more naked women than your grandparents did. It's horrific. And it devalues these people. They feel it. They spoke about it. And yet we consume it like it's no big deal. And maybe you're blessed with the ability to watch this stuff and not lust. Please don't make it an excuse to to endorse it in our culture. I'm just asking you, as somebody who has been in so many situations, when I bring my kids in, I'm not sure what's going to be on their TVs. Let's not even bring it into our homes. I'm not here to judge. Again, I'm not here. I'm here to call. I'm not here to make you, right now you may feel guilty and you may feel ashamed or you just may be scared. But guys, again, I want to tell you, we're talking about this for a reason because right now we need to ponder the problem, but there is a way to protect our children. There are lots of, we are at the best position yet in the history of the last 25 years to protect our kids. We do not have to see this 90% go up. We can see it go down. There's plenty of stuff out there to aid us and enable us to make a difference in this place. And that's what we're going to talk about. And we're going to move on to how do we get free? How do we see these chains broken? How do some of us get to that place where we are able to live without it and bond rightly in the way God intended? How do we get to the beauty of walking in freedom? Because here's the answer. If the sun sets you free, you're free indeed. Amen. Jesus has set you free by bearing your sins on the cross. He knew you would struggle with this and you do not approach God in your sin. You approach God in his righteousness. It is not your righteousness that gets you into heaven. It's his. It's not your goodness that enables you to stand before God. It's Jesus's. And that means that if we are those who are struggling and bound to this, Jesus is ready to set us free. And finally, that if you have a loved one in your life who is bound to this, I'm asking you, please, please, please don't judge. Understand the reason I brought all these statistics out is to show you that they're not alone. And that most likely most of these men and most of these women were once young children exposed at an early age and they have received an addiction they never went looking for. It found them. And so please remember what Jesus tells us when we're in situations where we get angry and we want to judge and we want to do that. Just if you see that speck in your brother's eye but you don't notice log in your own eye, 
how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? I don't want us to be bound in bitterness. Ladies, a lot of you are going to end up hearing stuff at some point in your life from your children or from somebody in your family. Men, you're going to do the same thing and it's, you're going to want to get angry and point fingers and I'm just going to tell you guys, it brings out our own sins. We are all sinful and it's going to bring out a bunch of garbage. We need to be ready to walk to Christ together, to fight for purity together so God is exalted in our lives and bitterness and sin is placed at the foot of the cross. I believe God is giving us this moment and this time not to feel bound, not to feel guilty in the wrong way, but to be freed and to walk forth from here aiming at victory, which Jesus brought us when he rose from the dead. I love you guys, and I'm bringing this not to scare you, but to call us out. We have the opportunity to make a big difference. Let's do it together. Let's pray first, because he is the God who has the victory. Father, we do. We come before you, you and your great victory, you and your great ability to empower us to overcome these things that are occurring in our culture, in our lives, and with our children, with our grandparents, with our cousins. God, it is everywhere. And we ask instead of it being a fearful thing that you would remind us that you are a great God who is over all things. Instead of it being a shameful thing that we remember that you bore our shame upon the cross and that you were willing to be shamed for us that we would receive honor before you. And then, God, it may be a guilty thing, but you've given us the right to confess our sins before you and you will cleanse us of our unrighteousness. And so allow us now, God, to be a people who are not bearing these burdens alone, but to become a people who are willing to step forward and be free. God, I pray that you would empower us to that end and that you would be glorified in our church, in your church globally, so that you, you, God, you are glorified and made great. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.